All right, so ha hello online folks. Y'all should all be here by now. It's noon. We're getting started online, in person. Um, it's great. And we, we are here to finish up um, probably next week, I actually think, the Gospel of John. I don't, I don't expect us to finish it up today, but I kind of think we'll probably do it um, by the end of next week, which will work out pretty well because then the next week, April 26th, we do not have class. So we will all be here together, cheerfully fellowshipping and learning next Tuesday, yes. But the next Tuesday, two weeks from today, we will not have class because Patty and I will be on vacay, as they say these days. Where, Patty? Where are we going? Newport Beach. Newport Beach, California. Yeah, yeah. Weather there will probably be exactly the same as it'll be here. But, yeah. So, anyway, I'm glad to be with you all this morning. I should have made up a, a, made up a slide about the fact we don't have class in two weeks. But we are meeting next week. We are meeting next week. And just always keep an eye on those Friday updates that I send out every Friday. And um, hence, they're called Friday updates. And <laughs> you will know what's going on the next week. So, there are two red boxes. And if you would please register your presence and keep the boxes moving around the room from table to table, we will slowly relearn those skills, okay? And um, let's see. And if you are new to the class and you don't find your name on the roster, what that means is you need to write your name and email address on the, uh, some of the blank space on the top page or something. And Connie will get you, get you added to the roster. And then that will ensure that you get the aforementioned Friday update. Okay? So, let's see. How are you today, Patty? Patty is our moderator here with our Facebook friends. There are more tables because it's set up for, what do they call it? Ah, the table. There's a group of women who meet down here tomorrow morning called the table. And so they, they wanted tables and chairs. And last week we didn't really have enough set up. This year we have, this week we have kind of an overflow, but you know, better too many than not enough. So let's see, that's all good. Um, and so a week, two weeks from today, we don't meet. And so on, that, on the next Tuesday, three weeks from today, I believe we will have finished the Gospel of John and we will begin Paul's letter 1 Corinthians, okay, which is just terribly interesting. They have all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems that he is trying to help them with. So, anyway, so how's the volume? Great. Is the volume good? Julie, volume not so good? How about now? I mean, it's on, right? I just don't have confidence in the system yet. I guess that will come. Okay, so, do you have anything you want to add before we get started today, Patty? I don't. I, I am going to um, just keep the people online because people join in at different times. That occasionally I will drop in where we are. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. All right, would you pray with me? 
Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here today. We are grateful every single time we can come together like this. We're loving the fact that we can be, be, be back in fellowship again. And we appreciate that we have the technology to go, to go online and live stream to the folks who can't be here. But in the bigger sense, they are here and they are with us. And we know that your Holy Spirit was called us here. And we just pray that your Spirit would um, open up these last portions of John's Gospel so that we can hear John well and come to appreciate the truth, the truth, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and, and begin to consider what that really means for us, our lives, and for the world we live in. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I keep ducking over here. Trying to make it sound right to myself. Okay, that sounds a little better. So I don't have to, to scream. Okay, so let's talk about where we've been. We are in the resurrection portions of John's Gospel, right? And we've been there for, for a few weeks now because John's resurrection section is actually quite lengthy with several different stories and encounters with the resurrected Jesus that make up John's resurrection um, accounts. So, um, as I explained a few weeks ago, just outside the principal city walls of ancient Jerusalem, there was a spot that was a quarry, a place where tombs existed, a little garden-like because of the water that would collect there in this quarry, and that is the place where Jesus was um, crucified and buried and resurrected. And you might ask me, well, Scott, how do we really know that? Well, how do you know anything? The reason we can have a pretty high level of confidence in it is that about a little more than 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Emperor Constantine became uh, a Christian. He sort of had a vision of Christ and gave himself to Jesus in whatever fashion that meant for him. And his mother, Helena, she did as well. And then Helena made a trip to the Holy Land and she went around from place to place to place to place to place asking where did this happen, where did that happen, where did this happen? And they told her that, well, he had been crucified at this spot. Another piece of supporting evidence is the fact that in the second century, the Romans built a pagan temple on that very spot. Why? In order to assert to assert their dominance and probably begin to push away these persistent stories about Jesus and the growing, the growing Christian movement. So if you were to visit archaeologists in general, 98 out of 100 are going to tell you that's the spot. Okay, So that's where Jesus is, uh, his body's taken down from the cross, he is buried. We've talked about the method of burial really important to grasp how they buried people then. It's very different from the way we do it now. Okay? And then on the Sunday morning, the way in John's account, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. He doesn't say there aren't other women with her, but he is focused like a laser on Mary Magdalene. It is the first time we have encountered her in, in, in John's Gospel. 
And so she comes to the tomb alone, and we get the story of how that unfolds. She sees the, the stone is rolled away, but she doesn't go in. She is just consumed with her understandable fear that somebody had stolen Jesus' body. So she ran for help. And that story is told at the beginning of, of chapter 20. But after that all settles down, she is remaining outside the tomb. And it's there that she encounters Jesus. Okay, And at first she doesn't recognize him. And we talked about that last week. It is very understandable. Because there was zero expectation of a crucified Messiah. Hence, zero expectation of a resurrected Messiah. And there was zero expectation of a single person being resurrected. So, of course, she, she thinks this person that she first spots outside the tomb is a gardener or something. But then he speaks to her and she comes to see that it is Jesus. And we get the famous part where he says, don't hold on to me. Um, uh, and that we talked about that being, it, it, it's not meaning that he isn't touchable, because he is touchable, as we will see a little bit later in, in John's Gospel, as we saw last week when we went to Luke chapter 24. Um, he is touchable, but she wants to, the, Thomas, <laughs> John's theology is that he, she, She wants to hold on to him and keep him in the life that he has led with the disciples and that he can't, he is not going to do. He is going to return to the Father and things will not be the same. Just as we read when we were reading through John 14, 15, 16, he is leaving, they can't go with him, God is going to send another one after him, all of that. And so he is not going to resume his his life with the disciples. It's completely understandable that she thinks that's what would happen. When Lazarus is raised from the dead, what happens with Lazarus? He goes home, he has lunch, right? Resumes his life, whatever comprises his life. I don't know. Whatever they did all day long. That's what he was doing. And he did it for the rest, for the rest of his life, okay? And then he died a second time, really. But Jesus has passed through death to a new life, a newly embodied life, a life after life after death. And um, that's what he is trying to convey to her. So then we, and then she runs to tell everybody, right? Important point. Why? Because she's a woman. And in essence, she is the first apostle. It's not wrong to call her that because she is the one who carries the word of the risen Christ to the other disciples. And an apostle is someone who carries forth the proclamation. That's what it means. That's what the word apostolos means. She's the one who is, who is sent forth, who carries forth the, the word, and she does that. And, um, and the whole thing is remarkable considering the place of women in the ancient world, not just in Judaism, but just in the ancient world generally. I've mentioned many times that I, I heard a series of lectures once, and one of them was entitled Women and Slaves, colon, 
less than human. That's generally how women and slaves were viewed in the ancient world. It is a man's world, it is especially a freed man's world. Um, and the fact that this, these accounts center around a woman is just most remarkable because what's going on in that? What's going on in that is John is just, John is just telling you what happened. All the gospel writers just tell you what happened. They don't try to make sense of it all. They just tell you what happened. That's exactly what, that's exactly what John does. And uh, so then in uh, beginning in at verse 19 of chapter 20, we also did this last week, Jesus appeared to the disciples. Okay? And... Um, in sort of a little Pentecost moment, breathes on them. There, his, his, he had promised that the Spirit would come after him, and now the Spirit is coming after his death and resurrection. And it, it doesn't mean to supplant what happens on Pentecost. It is meant to, it, it, it's a foretaste of what will happen on, on Pentecost. I think that's the best way to see it. All right, so... Now we come, oh, there they are, all, all meeting. I took time finding this slide. I didn't even put it up. There we are. They're all meeting. This first encounter in the evening when Jesus returns to the disciples. Okay, and if you looked, ah, here's an interesting little trivia question. Let's assume they're all there. How many are there? How many disciples are there? Eleven. Oh, I hear a ten over here. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, yeah, 10, 10, because who's missing? We know, well, we, we're about to find out that Thomas was missing. Most people know that Thomas isn't there because he's going to encounter Jesus a week later and be super skeptic, okay? But who else isn't there? Judas isn't there. And Judas will not be replaced yet. He will be replaced in Acts chapter 1. He gets replaced later. They draw lots and pick a disciple named Matthias. To, to take Judas's place to reconstitute the twelve. Okay? So, anyway, so we're going to pick up at verse 24, but before I do, let me see if there's any questions or things that I can answer for you at this point. Yeah, I mentioned this to Patty a couple of weeks ago. I think Mary was totally in love with Jesus. Why do you say that? Just, this, just the feeling I get that there's a dedication to him. Well, a lot of I think I think I think all the disciples loved Jesus. Now, whether it went a romantic love or not, I I, I don't know about that. Okay. Yes, I think they 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 were they loved him. She loved him. Yes. And they all loved him, and um, I guess you could say she loved him as a man because he was a man, right? So, um, but there really isn't any hint of any romance stuff, no. which is, it's very popular, right? Da Vinci Code, other places, there's not any no, hint no, of that really um, in here. I and Jesus said, would you marry me? She jumped all, all, all if Jesus, okay, here's Gary's comment. If Jesus had said, would you marry me? She would have jumped all over it. <laughs> well, maybe she's not the only one. I don't know. <laughs> But, you know, 
there a, a lot of there's been a lot of what there's been a lot of imagining around Mary Magdalene that gets kind of far afield. I mean, just remember, John's gospel is long, right? It's quite lengthy. And here we are in chapter 20, the first time we've even heard the name Mary Magdalene. She, isn't, she is, doesn't even appear in John's gospel before um, she goes to the tomb that morning. So, she's important, but... I just don't go with the romance thing. So, okay. Any other questions I can possibly not help you with? Yes, sir. What woman wouldn't fall in love with a guy who could turn water into wine, Richard says. Now we know. Who needs six divines when you have Jesus around, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I, when, when I started teaching the Bible, I said I wanted to accomplish three things with people. I wanted to help them engage the Bible, okay? I wanted to help them embrace the Bible and its teachings, and I wanted them to enjoy it. Y'all do really well, particularly number three, okay? I'm just <laughs> So, yeah, we should enjoy it. You know, enjoy is a word derived from what? The word joy. So we should enjoy Scripture. And I often think of um, the disciples sitting around fires telling stories about Jesus or the Israelites sitting around fires telling the stories of Elijah and all the rest. It would be a principal form of entertainment and remembering for them. Right? So... Anything else? Okay, so now we come to the encounter with Thomas. This is Doubting Thomas, right? This is Caravaggio's famous painting of Thomas. I get the biggest kick out of it. I love it, love it, love it. Because he is telling Thomas basically just to go two uncles deep. Now, I'll, to skip ahead, it never says Thomas actually touched Jesus. We'll look for that. Jesus invites him to, but he never actually touches Jesus in the text, in what's written. Um, but of course, we imagine he did. He could have. Um, we looked at Luke 24 last week when Jesus showed his disciples he, he was flesh and bones. That's are Jesus' words. I'm flesh and bones. Hand me the fish. And he ate the fish in front of them so they could see that he wasn't a ghost, that he was flesh and bones. But here it's just, look at Thomas. He's looking so intently, right? Because he stands for many, many skeptics, right? I mean, that, I mean that's what's captured the imagination of Thomas all these years. Um, I think we all struggle from time to time with different kinds of doubts. I just think it's, it, it's part of, of, of being inhuman and it's of part of being human. It's part of why we come together um, as a church to, to help each other, to help each other with that. There's, there's, no, there's no shame in it. There's no shame in Thomas doubting, right? I mean, just stop and consider 
Everybody knows dead people stay dead. Anybody here, had, have, have you had any other experience in your life than dead people staying dead? Roll back the clock. I don't care what civilization you go to, they all knew that dead people stay dead. That's how it works. If you happen to encounter somebody on a beach who has died, you're not, you don't imagine you're encountering them. You're encountering their ghost, Luke 24, or their shade or something, um, which is a Greek word for, for a ghost, basically. No, dead people stay dead. So, so, and there was no expectation among the Jews of a single person being resurrected. So all of that has to sort of swim around in us as we come to Thomas and let Thomas stand in for our doubts and the world's doubts. And John understands this. John, the gospel writer, understands everything I just said, as we'll see when we read the account. So, let's begin. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus. Didymus simply means twin. So there were two of them. Thomas had a twin. Chapter 20, verse 24. Chapter 20, verse 24. You probably have a section heading there that says something about Thomas, right? Those little section headings are kind of helpful. They're not the same from Bible to Bible, translation to translation, but I personally find them helpful. I have one Bible at home that doesn't have any of them. And I get lost too easily. Okay. <laughs> so now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which simply means twin, one of the twelve, the twelve, notice how in your translations the T should be capitalized, right? One of the twelve. Why twelve? Why twelve? Why must it be twelve? Why must Judas be replaced? Why, why is eleven or ten not a good number? The twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus is forming, forming around himself a new Israel which he is leading in a new exodus for which he is the lamb that has been slain. In the exodus in with Moses, remember a lamb is slain and its body broken and its blood spread on the doorway so the death of the firstborn would pass the Hebrew slaves by. Jesus is leading a new exodus, forming around himself a new Israel and ushering in a new world in which people are new creations. New, 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 new. In John's account here, we have what kind of tomb do we have? An old tomb or a new tomb? A new tomb, right? It's a new tomb. And Jesus is the gardener in this. Like the Garden of Eden was a new garden, okay? So there's just lots of that. Um, Isaiah 66 and Revelation 21, a new heavens, a new earth, all that new, new, new. It's just all bound up together in one glorious package. So Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Because the previous little story is the account of what happens on the Sunday evening. Thomas just wasn't there. I don't know where he was. He could have been hiding elsewhere. He, could have been, he might have been sent out for refreshments. 
I don't know. Pizza. I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> the point being simply that he wasn't there. Okay? He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, what do you think they told him right away when he got back with the pizza? <laughs> Ask yourself, what are they going to tell him? He walks in the door and they shout out, oh, we have seen the Lord. Of course they did. We have seen the Lord. What's his response going to be? Somebody went out for some other kind of refreshments and pizza, if you ask me. That, sure, because, again, really? What are you talking about? You have seen the Lord. What do you mean? Do you, you, remember Luke 24, G, they, Jesus is in the room, and what do they think they see? His ghost. His ghost. So again, you've got to, you've got to take a good part of what you know and what the Christians come to understand and figure out and, and, and put yourself there with the disciples that night, with Thomas that night. So he come when I'm just, whenever he gets back that Sunday night or during the week, they say to him, we have seen the Lord. And he says to them, well, in a good practical sense, this is, this is good like American skepticism. Americans are a very practical lot. You know, we're not really given over very much to high flying philosophies and all that kind of stuff. We, we, are, we are attracted to practical religions. What is it gonna do for me? What am I gonna do tomorrow? I've got my life application Bible because I wanna know exactly what I'm supposed to do very practical. And so Thomas, a very practical fellow, says, well, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. Now, again, as I pre talk about all, all the time, that word, what, what Greek word is underneath that word believe? Faith. The only reason it is believe in your New Testament here is because we lost, we've lost the verb form of faith in English. It's just an English problem. Some English teacher needs to fix that. Okay? I'm electing you. Okay, some English teacher needs to fix it because, we, because we've lost the verb form of faith, we substitute the word believe and it gets us all off on the wrong track. He says, I will not, I will not faith. I will not trust that you're telling me the truth. I'm just not gonna put my faith in what you're telling me because that's crazy. I'm gonna have to put my finger and my hands and my and elbow and everything else in there before I believe such a crazy thing. This is crazy, people. Crazy. I can just picture Thomas, you know, John writes it all down and it's all kind of encapsulated in a few words, but you know there's some pretty long conversations around this. And Thomas is just, he's just doubts. I don't, I, I don't pick on Thomas at all. I think Thomas stands in for how most of us would be. Well, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. 
and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, just as before, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, what he had said before, am I getting this, this, this right? Peace be with you. Now, as I said last week, it does not say he passed through the doors. It just tells you what, John just tells you what he, what he knows. That the door was locked, and then in an, a moment, Jesus is there with them inside the locked room. And I shared with you my perspective that I think stepping into our dimension from God's dimension is a better way perhaps to think about it than, than stepping through doors because the problem with viewing it or telling your kids that he went through the door is it feeds the whole idea that the resurrected Jesus doesn't really have a body like you and I have. He's more like a ghost. He's more like Casper or whomever. But he's not like Casper. He's not a ghost. He said it himself. He's not a ghost. He is flesh and bone. Um, and so we, I just think we're better off just to, just to use our 21st century understanding of the cosmos and view it as a change in dimensions rather than traveling through a door. But anyway, I hope I get to ask Jesus about that sometime. Okay, so he says, peace be with you. And then he looks at Thomas. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting in faith. Stop doubting and trust me. Trust the truth of this. It's so. It's real. It's as real as anything else you've ever experienced in your life. It's real. It's genuine. It's authentic. It's real. It's true. 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 Jesus invites Thomas to come over and what? Examine the evidence. Right? He doesn't simply look at Thomas and say, Oh, Thomas, 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 Thomas. You walked with me all that time and you don't trust me. It's not where he goes with this. What he tells to Thomas is, Okay, come on, come over here. Put your finger on my side. Put your hand on my side. Go as deep as you need to deep, as you need to. And then stop doubting and have faith. And I think that's really important to grasp. It, Coming to faith, we often, I hear people all the time over the course of my life talking about becoming a Christian is this big leap of faith. Well, sure, faith is involved, it's this blind leap of faith, big leap of faith, but I think believing there is no God is an even bigger leap of faith. We, have, we take leaps of faith all the time around everything. There's almost nothing in your life that you can prove. I, I remember a few years ago there was this great example in the news from Australia of some justice of the peace who had supposedly married like 2,000 couples. And they would have all wanted to prove to you that they were married by showing you their wedding license. 
and the pictures of that day. Well, they found out the guy was not really a justice of the peace at all, and all the weddings had to be redone. Right? Because they hadn't been married all that time, and they had to work out their ways to deal with that and so forth. The truth is, you know, our whole life is really built not upon things we can prove. You can prove Euclidean geometry, I guess. If you remember that from 10th grade, wow, was that boring. Okay, so, but otherwise, it's like we have this pyramid with little building blocks of, of beliefs. And our whole life is spent switching them out and trying to have a, a pyramid of beliefs about reality that are close, that we hope are closer and closer to the true nature of reality. Because there is a true nature of reality, we just want to get closer and closer to it. Right? So, you know, when we're little kids, isn't it, is it completely understandable that a four-year-old has in her pyramid a block that says Santa Claus is real? And don't get me with the Dear Virginia letter. Okay, that Santa Claus is a real breathing creature. Okay? Of course she does. Her parents have told her her whole life. But if she were 34 <laughs> and hadn't kind of modified that belief and maybe pulled it out the pyramid and put another one in about Santa Claus representing love and all that kind of stuff, we would be wondering about her. So that's what we do all the time. They're coming in and out and coming in and out. So here, Thomas doesn't have any block in his pyramid that addresses any of this. So he doubts. And Jesus says, look at the evidence. Come over here. Stick your finger in. Look what Caravaggio does. I mean, the flesh is parted. Notice it's it's kind of, oh gosh what just came to mind in my mind is the is the uh, creation of the woman in the original book of Genesis the Genesis one when when God realizes okay I'm going to have to make a woman how am I going to do that well I'm going to reach into Adam the man and I'm going to take a rib and I'm going to rip that sucker out. And I'm going to fashion that into a woman, which has a lot to say about the, the oneness of men and women. Um, but it's, it's a, it, my, I went to it because of the messiness of it. It's so physical, right? This, the, this story of reaching in, grabbing a rib, pulling the rib out, fashioning a woman here. Caravaggio, the wound is there. Thomas is looking intently as he parts the wound and sticks his fingers in. And Jesus has invited him to do that. Examine the evidence. Stop doubting and believe. Okay, so any questions about what I was just going on about? Okay, so, so, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting, 
and believe. Stop doubting in faith. And Thomas then says to him, My Lord and my God. Does it say anywhere that Thomas actually walked over and did this? No, it doesn't. The invitation's there. Might he have? Sure. Sure. I guess he might have. But John doesn't record it. John doesn't tell us that he did. John records and tells us about the invitation from Jesus, and then instantly you go to Thomas's reaction to the invitation to examine the evidence and the call to stop doubting. And Thomas yells out, my Lord and my God. And that's a profound little sentence right there, and I'm going to tell you why. After I have a small sip of water, So Thomas's response to Jesus's invitation is to say, my Lord and my God. So let's talk about the my Lord. Jesus has been called Lord previously in John's Gospel. He is the Lord, a Lord, Lord, but never, not one time, my Lord. This is the first time Jesus is called my Lord by someone. My Lord. See, it is profound for the world, right? It's profound for the cosmos. Jesus is the great Son of Man from Daniel 7, given dominion and glory and rule over all of God's creation. But he's also Thomas's Lord. Thomas is, the, the word is, yes. Yeah. So, so the, que- the the comment is that that the the gash from the Roman spear was actually probably larger than Caravaggio painted, and maybe that would have led to Thomas not needing to touch it. I don't know. Could be. Could be. Could be. What? Well, yeah. I don't know. I just think the soldier walked up, and, pfft, you know, I, 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 mm, I would have, yeah, I don't know. The gospel's recording got stabbed in the side. I, 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 I wouldn't get really more further now, no further than that. They're, the, these people are not, the gospel writers aren't consumed with, you know, sort of technically what happened and working out all the details of it. They... They want you to know, first of all, that Jesus' legs were not broken in the fulfillment of Scripture. And they want you to know that his side was pierced. They want you to know that he was dead, dead, and dead. That he wasn't merely swooning. You know, and beyond that, I don't don't think um, we need to be too too concerned about the particular anatomy, you know, of it. But because I have a jillion questions. As I've said before, there, it, there was, you can still find it online, there was an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association 
in like 1987 or 88 about the crucifixion written by two doctors who did take the whole accounts apart and try to look at them as medical doctors. Terribly interesting, horrifying, all at the same time when you realize that that's what happened with Jesus. So, um, so Thomas's response to the invitation is first, my Lord, and then he says, my God. And he is the first person in John's Gospel to refer to Jesus as God. Because as I've said uh, now, I'm glad I never had Patty count them. How many times that Messiah and God are two completely separate categories in the minds of these people. They, we know they come together in Jesus, but these people don't really grasp that yet. Messiah and God are two separate categories. Lord is, I mean, Caesar's Lord. Caesar's the king. Caesar rules an empire that stretches from the British Isles around and through the Mediterranean all the way across to the Tigris and Euphrates River. Caesar's certainly Lord. So Lord is a word, it's kind of a general word that talks about master and um, uh, Master is a good way to, to put it. And so even that word is separate from the word God. Because Thomas, like the rest, it's hard for us to grasp that because we are monotheists and our Jewish friends are all monotheists and our Muslim friends are all monotheists, it's hard to remember that, that these Jews who have been following Jesus, along with their fellow Jews, is this tiny little fraction of people in the ancient world that believe there's only one God. And nearly everybody believes that there are gods and goddesses of all sorts. It's only the Jews. And because it's only them, they were radically monotheistic. Because it it defined their separation from the world around them. And they believed that this one God, the only God who existed, not just the best God, the only God who existed had chosen them. These dusty people. That's what the word Hebrews is about. There were these dusty people on the far reaches of the Roman Empire that this one God, the only God who is, chose them to be the ones through whom God would work to, to put things right. It seems crazy to other, to other people, um, and the result of it is that this is a most remarkable statement from Thomas. It's just like, I don't think it's even, I don't, it's not like a rational statement. You know what I'm saying? It, he just encounters Jesus. He encounters this. He is overcome. He sees the wound. He believes. And he just... He doesn't say he fell on his knees. But I picture him falling on his knees. He falls on his knees and he says, My Lord and my God. Right? Which takes us to where? In John's Gospel. Full circle. Takes us to where in John's Gospel? We've been about this for so long, we can't even remember where it might take us in John's Gospel. Takes us back to chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now, after all that has happened in John's Gospel, including Jesus' crucifixion, Thomas yells out, My Lord, my God. In amazement, astonishment, just, I think it just comes out of his soul, just, 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 just bursts out of him. And if you had asked him, well, Thomas, would you sit down and explain all of that to me? I think he would have looked like you had, look, look at you like you had two heads or more. It's not that kind of statement. My Lord and my God. Because how do you, you know, how do you encounter We like to domesticate everything in our lives. We like to make it understandable to us. We like to make it, we like to take it and squeeze it into a box that makes complete sense to us so we can approach rationally, logically, look at all the evidence for and pretend like, oh yeah, we got this, we got this. But the Bible is filled with encounters with God that won't allow you to do that won't allow you to do that. There was a, a writer back in the 20s um, named Carl Otto who wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy and he invented a word, the numinous, the numinous to describe this God's aspect that is beyond, simply beyond us and would drive prophets to their knees. Sometimes it might be encountered in the, in the thunder and lightning and clouds of Mount Sinai or the numinous might be encountered in, um, in the sound of sheer silence when Elijah is running for, away from Jezebel. And he used other words, a tremendous mysterium to talk, just talk about the, to try to help us realize that we are encountering we are encountering God. And I think all of it's helpful, particularly for 21st century Christians who have too big a tendency to make Jesus little more than their buddy. There's a great bit on YouTube that came from some movie. It's George Carlin where he is introducing a new depiction of Jesus he calls Buddy Christ. <laughs> buddy Christ kind of famous and it's all about you know trying to you know make Jesus accessible to everyone well crud I, I'm not too worried about making Jesus accessible to everyone Jesus is Jesus we need to make ourselves accessible to him if I'm going to talk about this you know and um, we just have very I think we have very we're very consumed with what we think we can understand and um, so anyway, so Thomas said to Jesus, notice it sa says, Thomas said to him, Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And the translators are right to put an exclamation point there, even if he says it in hushed tones. I don't know how he said it. And Jesus told him, now here is the kicker. I guess it's the kicker. I'm not sure what a kicker is, but maybe this is the kicker. Because you have seen me, Thomas, well, you've believed, you've had, you, you've had faith. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to Thomas in the second half of that? Talking to us, exactly. Jan's got it exactly. He's talking to us. It's reaching out across the decades and the years and the centuries, speaking to blessed are those who don't have the opportunity to see it, the wound, or to touch the wound, whatever exactly happens in the room, and still have faith, who, who will still respond, who will still close the gap between our understanding, between what we can grasp about the truth and what the truth really is. Because the truth really is that Jesus was resurrected. That is the, that is the linchpin. That is, that's the foundation of, of everything. If he wasn't resurrected, we're wasting our time. If he wasn't resurrected, go home, go to Sixty Vines and have lunch and three glasses of wine. Whatever you want to do. Okay? If he wasn't resurrected, this whole thing is a waste of time. And I'm not interested in wasting my time. I'm not. Surprisingly. Yes, so, but it is true, it is true, it is true, it is true. And that's what's so great about the fact we're going to go from this letter, this gospel, to, to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Because that letter, 1 Corinthians, closes with Paul's great chapter on the resurrection, which I can't teach too many times and you can't hear too many times. That's the truth of it. Because we live in a world filled with skepticism, doubts, and misunderstandings. You know, our Lauren here, Lauren Gerlach, is associate pastor here at the church, just finishing up her semester, last semester, her whole education at Perkins. Yay, nearly done. <laughs> She's going to walk soon. She has, in 2021, there are students at at Perkins that raised the question of, well, you know, Jesus might never actually have existed. That question was, that I'm telling you right now, that question from a scholarly viewpoint was put to bed a hundred years ago. Nobody who knows anything about Jesus raises that question anymore. Yet it still lives on. It still lives on because Jesus, why does it live on? Because Jesus expects things of us. A lot of us want reasons not to believe. We don't want, we don't want to really think that we are really supposed to be kind and compassionate and gentle. We prefer to think, oh really, I could be a snarky, you know, on Twitter as I want to be. But no, they shouldn't be as snarky on Twitter as they want to be. They may want to be snarky, but they shouldn't be snarky on Twitter or anywhere else. And I, I just think that, that, that the culture just, just, doesn't want, just doesn't want to hear about Jesus, not because they want to disprove this or that, because they just don't want to hear about what Jesus expects of them. Anyway. Yes. Um, I had a thought when you were going through verses 24 through 29. That is, first of all, such a gift that John includes it, right? Because yes. Because it's like written for us who wrestle with doubt as humans and also 
like in the 18th century enlightenment, the whole John Locke thing, right? Wanting to prove everything, only going off what you can see, only going off what you can touch. And that was their reason versus faith controversy, right? Yes, so the what? The whole thing is these five verses of like, if John Locke exactly. What Lauren's bringing up, and she should, is that we are still people of the Enlightenment. People generally are pe we we're just a product of the Enlightenment. And that's why we're so consumed with what we can see and touch. Nothing wrong with that. But don't think that what you can see and touch can take you all the way, all the way to the truth. There's a lot of truth that escapes our ability to sense it. Right? I just, this is why I always, my, you know, my, my go-to is always quantum mechanics and quantum physics and all that weird little stuff happening down there at the subatomic level that makes no sense. It makes no sense. It's completely and utterly illogical. But it's true and it's why your, our computers work. And so, and so this, like so many places in Scripture, call us beyond where the Enlightenment would want to leave us. Right? It isn't saying the Enlightenment was bad, but it is saying the Enlightenment's desire to shove faith out of the house or in a distant corner of the house is, is, was dreadfully wrong and left, left us in a dreadfully weakened place to understand and to come to know the God who is. Wow. Okay. Anything else? <laughs> Everything from the Enlightenment to whatever, to what, six divines today. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, let me catch my breath for a second. I'm getting so worked up here. I just love this stuff. And I learned a long time ago, some of you may be asked to teach the Bible at some point. You know, you're, if you're going to teach the Bible, you have to be enthusiastic about it. You have to love it. You, you, you can't expect other people to if you don't. I mean, I've taught really boring stuff like Management 301 <laughs> <laughs> at TCU. I mean, you talk about boring. Management 301, you know, oh my gosh. But I would always try to bring energy to the classroom because that was the only place it was going to start from. They would be dragging in half the, half, heck, 90% of the students are prisoners. They're there because they have to be there. They're going to get their degree. They show up. They're prisoners. What I love about you guys is, this is a true statement. Everybody that comes is a volunteer. None of you are prisoners. You don't have to be here. You want to be here. You choose to be here. That, that's just awesome. There's real power in that. Real power in that. The power of the body of Christ. Okay, so I'm ranting on today. I don't know why, but that's the mood I'm in. Chapter, verse 30 of chapter 20. Just let's read it, then we'll talk about it. So John writes, okay, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written 
that you may believe, that you may faith, there's that strange thing again, you may faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay? Now, if you look on, well, first of all, you would think that the next two words would be the end. <laughs> right? Don't, well, really, don't you think that? It would be the end. And it could be, should be, maybe, I don't know. But it isn't because we have chapter 21 with two stories. The miraculous catch of fish where Jesus is cooking breakfast on the seashore and then Jesus' poignant encounter with Peter. So what gives? So first of all, let's, let's, let's look at verses 30 and 31 a little more closely. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book and they're not recorded in Mark and they're not recorded in Matthew and they're not recorded in Luke. How do we know that? Because his ministry went on for like two years. Now, I grant you that not a lot happened in the two years of the pandemic, but that was odd, right? Typically, lots of things happen over the course of two years. So, of course, there were a lot of things that, that happened and, that, and things that Jesus did that weren't recorded and written down. I mean, goodness, you can read the Gospel of Mark in 40 minutes. You could read all the Gospels in an afternoon. So, of course, they're not going to contain everything that they could. It's a, they're all written with, the, why are they written? Are they written to record everything that happened in a good sort of Dallas Morning News way? If they're still good at that, I don't know, <laughs> right? No, that's not why they're written. They're not written to record everything in a nice Dallas Morning News way. They are written so that you might believe. Which John says explicitly in verse 31. But that's why the other ones are written so that you might believe. They are proclamate, each of the Gospels is a proclamation of the good news. They're complimentary portraits of Jesus, but they're all written so that you might, that, that you might come to know Jesus. So that you might come to know Jesus. And hence, in knowing Jesus, come to believe, come to faith, come to see that this is the man to whom you need to entrust yourself. So, Verse 31, these are written, what he has written down in the Gospel of John by the writer of the Gospel of John, who I think is John, the son of Zebedee, the disciple whom Jesus loved. These are written that you may believe, have faith, trust the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what did John mean by that? The Messiah is plain. That's a kingly term. That's an anointed, he's the anointed one of Israel. The king from the line of David. Human, human idea, human category, right? Son of God, also a way to refer to the Messiah. But does John have something more in mind than that? Can't really say. Son of God would be a way to refer to, um, to the Messiah. There are other sons of God. It's just a 
but for Jesus, of course, it all comes pulling together and you realize that Jesus is Messiah, He is Lord, He is God, He is God's only begotten Son, and might John writing in 90 AD mean more? Perhaps so. Perhaps so, because of how he begins the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so now, he means, he means something with the phrase, Son of God, that is theologically closer to what you and I mean when we use it with respect to Jesus. And then he finishes by saying in that by believing, by trusting, you may have life in his name. So, we, that you may have life. Jesus talks earlier in John's Gospel about the abundant life, about eternal life. God invites us into eternity with God. God invites us to be reborn, to be born a second time. That's what Nicodemus didn't understand in John 3, that, that, that when you come to faith in Christ, when you entrust yourself to him, you become, you are reborn what N.T. Wright, I, I love this phrase, puts it this way, he says, a member of a new human race. And that the churches that emerge are colonies of this new human race. People who have been reborn in Christ. People who are new creations in Christ. Embracing a life that is abundant, present, and eternal. We think of the word eternal as referring only to what comes at the end of some timeline. That's not it. When you come to faith in Christ, you are stepping from this life into eternity. You are reborn. It doesn't wait until the end of some timeline. It includes the timeline, but you, you're not waiting for that. I think Christians in our day, and maybe for most of Christianity, I don't know, but certainly I think Christians in our day have a difficult time grasping who they are. We're pretty comfortable talking about, you know, whose I am, because then we're ready to preach sermons about, oh, I belong to Jesus and stuff. But then that we, we don't understand who we are, that we have actually been reborn. And you might say to me, well, Scott, you're telling me I've been reborn because I've put my faith in Jesus and oh Scott I have but I don't feel reborn and I don't act reborn and I'm gonna say to you well act better then <laughs> <laughs> that's Paul in his letters he's basically all the time grabbing the the, the, the the Christians by the you know metaphorical lapels and saying okay remember who you are you've been reborn the spirit dwells in you now will you please just act like it Act a little more like it. Just a little more like it. Yeah, because it's the truth. It's the, it's the truth. And all of, this, all of this fits together. It's all woven together. These aren't, these aren't all just little distant pieces of this and that. This little claim and that little claim. It's why the resurrection undergirds the whole thing. If Jesus was resurrected to a newly embodied life, 
that is what enables Paul to later on to write. Long before this gospel is written, Paul, Paul's dead for, I don't know, 30 years before this gospel is written. It's what enables Paul to, tell, to write the Christians and say to them, you have been crucified with Christ, you have been resurrected with Christ. Because what is true of Jesus is true of them. What is true of Jesus is true of us. That's, that's, if that doesn't knock you, knock you out of your socks, as we used to say, you have to, you have to get to a place where it does knock you out of your socks. It's what, it's, it's why Christianity is not, the Christian claim is not about, oh, it's this nice little straight line, little upward twill, I'll get a little better tomorrow than yesterday. It is boom. As Paul writes, the old is gone, the new is come. Boom. New creation. New creation. For the world, for us, and we're just waiting for Jesus to return and bring it to its full consummation. And in the meantime, we, we, we build for the kingdom and we strive to be the people God has already made us into. But, but we, we can't diminish or, or fail to understand what... What Jesus, is, what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so John writes, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That in his name is a powerful phrase for ancient people. Names for you and me are just labels. That's not true. His name carries Jesus' power. That you, that, that you believe Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. You trust Jesus. If it's halting at times, it's halting at times. If you have doubts at times, you have doubts at times. That's okay. Come back tomorrow. Come back the next day. Strive. It's why we don't, none of us can do this alone. I have friends or family members who think that you can do this alone. You can't do this alone. There's no biblical understanding of people being Christian apart from the body of Christ. We have to be part of the body. You guys lift me up. You guys call me back. I hope you call one another back and lift each other up. And if we start having doubts, you bring them to this table and among these friends. And we, we keep ourselves going. But to imagine that you could kind of just be out there all by yourself. You know, I love Jesus. You know, I'm sold out. I love Jesus. All by yourself? Really? Really? The New Testament has no conception of that. Am I wrong, Lauren? I am not wrong. Right? There's, I am not wrong. I say that because she is finishing up seminary. I'm just so, it's just awesome. Okay. So, here's what we're going to do, I think. I'm going to see if there's any final questions. We're going to wrap this up. When we come next week, we will do chapter 21. And I think that will, um, yeah, we'll, we'll finish up next week because chapter 21 will move along. We spent so much time two weeks ago, last week, this week, setting up chapter 21 that it, it'll move well and we will finish it up. And then we'll have a week off, right? And then when you come back, we will begin 1 Corinthians. All right? So...
Any final questions today? Yes. Do you think that the, the writers of the gospel had any, were envisioning what they were doing was creating scriptures that would <coughs> preach the gospel around the world for the end of the Okay, so, so Richard's question to me is this. Did the gospel writers have any idea that they were creating scripture? Make, I'll use the word texts or writings that would spread around the world. I think the gospel writers do. They have a sense that they are writing for a local community and for a larger audience that they are on a mission. And, and they're writing later. Remember, I mean, Mark is probably first, and it's not for 35 years until after Jesus' death and res resurrection. So I, I think that they do have a sense of, of writing beyond themselves, the people immediately around them. And what's interesting is, I don't think Paul does. Certainly not at the beginning. He's just writing letters to churches. Maybe as, as the 50s move forward and Paul finds that his letters are being copied and circulated, Maybe he gets some sense of that, but he's, Paul's just writing letters to churches that he's trying to pastor and help with their issues. And did, do we have all the letters he wrote? Surely not. We just have the letters that survived and got passed around and copied. The best of the best, as we might say. So I, anyway, so I, I think Paul had, uh, probably when he started writing, he had no conception of that. But maybe, I hope he did as, as the years go by. That, his, that he was writing for a larger audience? I don't know, good question. Okay, Patty? You want me to close us? Okay, I'm gonna close this. So let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord, you have called us to this life. You have called us to this life with Christ, a life to be lived together a life to be lived in Christ. We know that your Holy Spirit dwells in each of us, binds us together, that your Holy Spirit dwells in the church. Help us to remember this every day as we strive to be the people that you have already made us into, people who are kind and compassionate and gentle and seek the truth and don't respond in kind to people who, who offend us. Help us not to be snarky or, or gossipy or revel in the troubles of others. Help us to learn what it really means to love you and to love our neighbor, all our neighbors. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.